John Stam, a missionary to Southeast Asia, died on December the 8th, 1934, kneeling next to his young wife, Betty. John was slain by a sword simply for his obedience to go and preach Christ to those dying without him. He was 27 years old. Betty Stam followed her husband in death, dying at the end of the same sword which had just moments before taken his life. She too was slain for her obedience to go to the nations with the gospel of Christ Jesus. They had a little girl, Helen, who was three months old when her parents were martyred. Betty was 28 years old. John and Betty, by the grace of God, were both born into families who loved and served the Lord Jesus. John's family operated the Star of Hope mission in Patterson, New Jersey. It is there that John came to saving faith at the age of 15. Betty was born into a Presbyterian missionary family, and uh, irony of ironies, her family served in the place, she grew up in the place, where she would eventually return and be martyred for her faith. It turned out that Betty and all of her siblings, all four of them, would grow up to be missionaries. The Stams attended Moody Bible Institute, which is where they met and fell in love. However, they did not marry in the States. They did not even travel to Southeast Asia together. Uh, Betty traveled first. She went in 1931 with John following the next year. Uh, they then were reunited on the mission field and were married the day after their reunion, not wanting to waste any time. However, if you were to look at their writings, it, it becomes very obvious to us that though, yes, they loved one another dearly, their love for one another paled in comparison to their love for their Lord. Consider, for example, something Betty wrote while she was still in college and considering what it means to serve the Lord Jesus. Betty wrote this, When we consecrate ourselves to God, we think we are making a great sacrifice and doing lots for Him, when really we are only letting go of some little bitsy trinkets we have been grabbing. And when our hands are empty, He fills them full of His treasure. The Stams loved the Lord and gave everything in service to Him in order that they would have the treasure that he offers. We know that the Apostle Paul gave everything that he had in service to the Lord Jesus as well, desiring above all else citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, resurrection from the dead, and the reward of eternal life. In the letter uh, to the church at Philippi, we find Paul uh, writing from his first Roman imprisonment to this church, which began during his second missionary journey. We read all about uh, Paul and his adventures there in Philippi with Silas in Acts chapter 16. Uh, it's there we learn an important note about the city. Uh, Philippi was a leading city in Macedonia and was a Roman colony. Uh, their identity as a Roman colony, their uh, being connected to the empire, was a tremendous source of pride for the people of the city. That actually played an important role in Paul and Silas's arrest while they were there in the city. They were accused of promoting things that were uh, illegal and lawful, unlawful 
for Romans to be a part of, namely worship of anyone or anything that diverted attention and devotion away from Caesar. Paul reminds the Philippian Christians that the citizenship that they should be most concerned with then is their heavenly citizenship. Though national pride would tell them, you must take pride in being a Roman citizen, they were to prize their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven most of all. So Paul uses this letter to provide instruction on how to live as a citizen in God's kingdom, a citizenship that we will see in the text this morning that includes suffering persecution from those who oppose Christ. Paul's point in this text is that faithful kingdom citizens will continue to follow Jesus even in persecution. But we must also see that churches display loyalty to the kingdom of God as they persevere in persecution best when they stand united in and through persecution in their love for God. So with that, let me read for us our text this morning. It's Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. We'll go through verse 30. So Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, and, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So to this point, Paul has been giving the church uh, an encouraging update on his situation as a prisoner in Rome. Uh, as it turns out, his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel through the imperial guard. It has caused other believers to become bold in their faith, willing to go and to share the gospel of Christ. And on top of that, Paul, if we had read a few verses earlier, Paul anticipated being released from prison and being able to continue aiding the Philippians, telling them that he thought that he would be able to continue aiding them for their progress and joy in the faith. But, as we see there in verse 27, Paul had instruction for the church that was going to be true and what they needed to abide by and follow, whether he was able to come to them or not. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now when we read that, let your, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, I think just kind of glancing at it, it might be easy to go, whoa, wait a minute, Paul. I'm supposed to live in such a way that makes me worthy to receive the gospel of Christ. That seems counter to things that you have said elsewhere, and of course, that would be true. Hopefully, we know to immediately reject any kind of notion that we can live in such a way that makes us worthy to receive the gospel in a we-earn-it fashion. So then, we should ask ourselves the question, what then does Paul mean when he says living, or talks about living a life worthy of the gospel? Well, you, you may have a footnote that another possible translation here is only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Well, and then that would then fit within a major theme of the book, what is an undercurrent throughout the book that I mentioned a moment ago, which is citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. 
Paul's going to express this plainly a couple of chapters later in Philippians 3, verse 20, where he tells the church, uh, our citizenship is in heaven. The context of Philippians 3 is very similar to things that are happening here in Philippians 1, in that there in Philippians 3, Paul talks about pushing forward in his calling to follow Christ, and he urges the church to do the same, to follow in his example of faithfulness, which is very much like what he is doing in chapter 1. So I think it is safe to assume that citizenship is not just in view in Philippians 3, it is in view here in chapter 1 and throughout the book. It is a theme and undercurrent throughout. But then the question still remains, the question is, okay, well how? How would the church live worthy of the kingdom of heaven? How would they live worthy of their citizenship in Christ's kingdom? Well, Paul is nice, and he tells them. He tells them right, right up. He says they would stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the call here is clearly for unity within the church. But he's not just talking like in general, though of course, generally speaking, at all times, unity is a good thing. However, Paul's focus is specifically on the need for unity during times of persecution. I think we know that persecution is in view in this text based off of what we read in verses 28 uh, through 30. We know that Paul is dealing with it. I mean, he's writing from prison after all because he was arrested for preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and it seems evident that the church is experiencing it in some capacity as well. Paul does tell them that they have opponents and that they should not be afraid of them. They have opponents who would try to intimidate them, who would use scare tactics. Don't be afraid of your opponents. So they have opponents. We also should note, and we did a moment ago, the environment that the church was in where national pride was everything. So their proclaiming Christ Jesus as king was not going to sit well with the people whose ultimate allegiance was with Caesar and Rome. And so, based off of those things, based off of Paul and Silas's own experience that I noted a minute ago, I think it's safe to assume that the heat would be and already was being turned up for the church at Philippi. They would have and did have opponents because of their faith in Jesus. But Paul's encouragement to them... In verse 27, it wasn't just about them banding together, coming together in a, in a holy huddle so that they could uh, stay safe. No, he was telling them, stand together because of what God has done for you and what he has done to you in Christ. Christ Jesus had made them one body, one family of faith through his death, for their sins. He had brought them into the larger family of faith that encompasses all believers from all times and all places and then had united them, this one local body, together as one family of faith. He brought peace to them, first with God and also with one another in His sacrifice for them. In his resurrection, through their repentance and faith, he had brought them together into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Their striving together was only possible because God had united them together in Christ Jesus. So the church at Philippi had to stand together at all times, especially in persecution. Well, the stams in their final moments, knew something of Christian unity. 
They were taken into custody on December the 6th, 1934. Betty had just given little three-month-old Helen a bath when political rebels stormed their village. The Stams had heard rumors that perhaps these rebels were in the area near to where they lived, but by the time it was confirmed for them, it was too late for them to escape. They were led out of their home and were held overnight in a local prison. The next day, they were forced to march 12 miles to another town where they were held overnight with John strapped to a pole and Betty allowed just enough freedom to take care of their daughter. The next morning, John and Betty were stripped of their clothes and paraded through the town. During this time, as they marched to their deaths, a local sharp, uh, shopkeeper, who was himself supposedly a lukewarm Christian, came to their defense. Despite the risk to his own life, this man pleaded with the rebels for the lives of the Stams. The rebels ordered him to be silent. They told him to step back into the crowd, but he would not listen to them. This prompted a search of his home and turned up a Bible and a hymn book. As it turns out, he was a dear believer, contending with and for his brother and sister in the faith. This would cost him his own life, slain by the same sword that ended the lives of John and Betty Stam. But what of their little girl? Where was Helen? For two days following the murder of the Stams, local Christians huddled in hiding around the village where the execution had taken place with the body of the Stams still lying there where they were slain. Among those in hiding was a pastor, Pastor Lowe, who came after hearing that two foreigners had been arrested, though he did not know who they were. As soon as it was safe, Pastor Lowe entered into the town where he was directed to the home that the Stams had been held in the night before. And there, tucked away safely in a sleeping bag, was little Helen, hungry, but otherwise unharmed. She had been hidden by her mother, along with diapers and ten dollars, to provide for her care once she was found. So Pastor Lowe began the journey of getting the child of these brave missionaries to safety. Along the way, Pastor Lowe and his wife were robbed of everything that they had, but after traveling eight days through rebel-infested mountains, little Helen was delivered safely into the arms of another missionary. From there, she would be taken to family, her maternal grandparents. She was safe. What would make a believer risk his life and die to defend two other Christians who were on their way to death? What would make a believer put his and his wife's life on the line to deliver to safety the child of two slain saints? Is it not the love of Christ? Is it not from having been united together within the one family of faith? We know that the church at Philippi, like any church, was not without its problems. We know at Philippi that you had two women, Euodia and Sintichi, who were at odds with one another. 
We read about this in Philippians 4, where Paul urges them, come to an agreement. Lay aside your differences. I need you to come to an agreement. Resolve what is between you. And I think this takes us back to what he's saying in Philippians 1.27. In fact, I, I tend to think that uh, what happens in Philippians 1.27 is probably informed by that situation that he knew about within the church. And so he tells him, believers do not need to be striving against one another. We need to be striving with one another. The bond that we share isn't over something temporal like a sports team or our political affiliation. We are united under the banner of the eternal kingdom of God. We are fellow citizens and heirs in his kingdom, all because Christ Jesus shed his blood for us. So we must stand firm in one spirit because we are one in the spirit, made so through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We strive together because we are called according to one purpose, the worship of God. It should make us, every one of us, supremely happy when God is praised. And it should make us righteously angry when He is mocked. We can and we must unite around that, standing together for the exaltation of His name. And this, I think... Can be, can be most clearly seen that this is what we're standing for when we stand firm and resolute in the face of persecution. Of course, when you start talking about persecution in our context, I think we know that we have a world of freedom that fellow brothers and sisters like the Stams did not have and still do not have today. We don't have people kicking in our doors to drag us off to prison or to kill us because we are Christians. But at the same time, I don't want to act like there are not difficult situations that we face because of the fact that we are followers of Christ. It could be the believer who loses their job or gets passed over for a raise or a promotion because their faith in Christ led them to turn down the uh, superior who is asking them to engage in immoral business practices. It could be that we don't actually enjoy, now that you know, we're getting close to the holidays, we don't enjoy getting together with family around the holidays because of tensions that exist with family members who seem to be looking for any and every opportunity to take us to task over our religious convictions. What about our students who daily enter into an environment where the presumption is that God is a myth and the teachings of the Bible, particularly on matters of sex and sexuality, though not limited to that by any stretch, are hateful and they are bigots for believing it. We should think of our professors that here that enter into that same environment as well, whose jobs are on the line for the things that they say. I'm sure we could come up with a litany of other incredibly difficult situations, and we should not diminish that. We may not experience much in the way of physical persecution, but verbal attacks that leave us wounded mentally and emotionally should not be overlooked. They hurt all the same. Having said that, I think we can agree that we have a certain degree of peace and stability, particularly in this area of the country, that believers in other parts of the U.S. and certainly around the world do not have. I want to draw your attention for just a moment to the Martin family. For those of you who are, are newer, we sent out a family to ch uh, plant a church in Portland, Oregon in 2014. Justin Martin, his wife Chandra, and their children. Their church... 
uh, Remedy City meets in a movie theater, which, while it is a cool experience, is not ideal to host a worship service in week in and week out. So they have been looking for a better place to meet, a, a better, more convenient space to meet in. However, what they found is that whenever someone finds out that they are a church, they are then uh, not willing to work with them. They will refuse to work with them simply on the basis that they are a church. That's unfathomable to us, right? And I hope that this serves as a reminder of our need to continue praying for the Martins and Remedy City Church in the difficult work that they are engaged in. But that's not something that we experience, right? We have a building. We show up to every Sunday and worship unhindered, unimpeded. So then, let me ask... What does it say when believers who are able to worship and serve together without fear from attack from the outside community continually pick fights with those who are inside our walls? Think about the things that cause division in churches. Our political opinions, our opinions for how to spend budget dollars, our opinions on non-essential theological points, our opinions on worship style, our opinion on programming, and so on. And what happens is we then create tribes within the family of faith, and we plant flags on one side of an issue or the other, drawing lines in the sand that determine whether or not I will fellowship with a fellow citizen in the kingdom of God. We get upset and assume ill intent over innocent comments, but instead of speaking with a brother or sister to simply clear the air, we hold grudges and harbor bitterness. But do we ever stop and ask ourselves, what are we accomplishing through this? Does this serve to promote the spread of the gospel, or does it hinder it? We have great freedom to work openly for the glory of Christ Jesus. But then we get sidetracked by dissension. The love of God for us in Christ Jesus is a radical love that is inconceivable in the me-first world that we live in. This love then has to characterize our interactions with other citizens in the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. In this love, we display the power and glory of God, not just to transform my life, but to transform an entire community of people who come together, bringing all sorts of baggage, and yet are formed into one by common love for God, by His power and by His grace. Jesus talks about the power of a loving Christian community in John 13, 34, and 35, where He says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The way that we think about, the way that we talk about, and the way that we act towards one another isn't of itself a way that we give a, give a hope for the defense that is within us. It is a way that we defend our faith. It points others towards the power of God to bind together imperfect people in Christ. This is seen clearly as uh, believers encourage and exhort one another to remain obedient to Christ. This is seen when we call out sin in the lives of a brother and sister and then walk with them as they repent 
And this is seen when our relationships with one another are marked by unity around the essentials, grace for one another around the non-essentials, and filled to the brim with patience in everything. And this is seen when believers support one another as they face persecution for their faith in Jesus. But how can we expect to do well at supporting each other when our feet are put to the fires of persecution if we cannot cooperate when our church isn't facing persecution? I think I have to ask myself, am I missing opportunities to support and encourage faithful brothers and sisters who are facing opposition for their faith in the Lord Jesus because I am caught up in petty squabbles and petty differences that won't make a hill of difference in eternity. A defining characteristic of citizens in the kingdom of heaven is love for other citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We learn in 1 John 4 that we cannot claim love for God and not love our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow believers. You cannot love God and hate your brother. We share a common goal, after all, the glory of Christ among the nations. We must be committed to that, which means laying aside minor disagreements and striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. We should do this, and we must do this, finding our greatest joy and satisfaction in Christ Jesus. It is our joy in Christ that shapes our attitude then when persecution does come our way. So the second thing I want us to see in the text, I hope you got the first since I think I forgot to mention it. Second thing is this, kingdom citizens suffer for, their, for the sake of their king. Kingdom citizens suffer for the sake of their king. So not long before his death, John Stamm wrote to his father about the growing threats uh, around them. Uh, he quoted a, a Presbyterian missionary, E.H. Hamilton, who himself wrote the poem that I'm about to read to you uh, after the death of another Christian missionary. So Stamm, writing to his father about the growing threats around them, pins this, Afraid? Afraid. Of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? The strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid? Of that? Afraid? Of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face? To hear His welcome and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace? Afraid? Of that? Afraid? Of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, brief darkness, light. O oh, heaven's art, a wound of his, a counterpart. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To enter into heaven's rest and yet to serve the master blessed from service good to service best. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not Baptize with blood a stony plot till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that? In verse 28, we pick up with Paul calling the Philippians to not be frightened in anything 
by their opponents. So striving together, working side by side for the cause of the gospel, they could not allow the efforts of those whose anger burned against them to cause them to fear. They should not be intimidated by scare tactics. They should expect opposition. And so the root of Paul's exhortation here, he makes it clear in verses 28 and 29. He says, believers do not need to fear persecution because of what it does and where it is from. Paul says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Those who opposed the church at Philippi were, in fact, in opposition to Christ Jesus. Though they may torment and harass the Philippian Christians, though they may throw them in prison as Paul was in prison, though they may strike them dead, this did not lead to glory for their persecutors. It was evidence of their rejection of the lordship of Jesus, and they would be judged rightly by him. On the flip side, Paul says persecution for their faith was actually evidence of the Philippian Christians' salvation. And then he says, and that from God. Okay, Paul, so, so what is from God? Is it the salvation? Is it the evidence of salvation, the persecution? Well, I think Paul shows us here that the answer is yes, all of the above. Consider verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So it has been granted to you that you should believe in him. It has been granted to you, you have been allowed to have, it has been given to you belief in Christ Jesus for his sake. Also, it has been granted to you, it has been given to you, you have been allowed to have sufferings for his sake. It's a both and. Regarding salvation, this has the same air about it as does Ephesians 2.8, which calls salvation a gift from God. What Paul shows us here is that God not only supplies us with saving faith, but also gives to us sufferings. And both are for the glory of Christ Jesus. James points to God giving trials, among them persecution, when he says in James 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. A couple of verses later in verse 17, he says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The testing of our faith is a good gift from a loving Father, says James. And in making this point, it seems he is remembering and echoing the words of the Lord Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount that we will have heard here very, very recently. Matthew 5, 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter speaks to this as well when he says in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In fact, we find evidence for this all over the New Testament. I'll give you a couple of verses. I'm not going to read them, but I would encourage you to write them down, look them up later. Romans 5, 2 to 5. Hebrews 10, 32 through 37. And 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 12. 
Persecution for faithful obedience to God, while not fun or enjoyable, is a good and precious gift of God's grace. By it, He is refining our faith and allowing us to share in the sufferings of Christ Jesus. Our suffering for the sake of our King proves our citizenship in His kingdom. It is a marker of salvation. We are counted worthy of suffering just as Christ our Lord suffered. What a wonderful encouragement that should be. God takes something terrible, horrific even, and He uses it for our welfare, for our good. It's by grace, then, that we persevere through suffering, and only by the grace and power of God that we persevere through suffering. And through it, we see that He is working through persecution to reveal to us our sins, our ultimate dependence on Him for life and breath and every good thing. And we see Him work in the lives even of those who are our persecutors, calling them to saving faith. When we walk through the fires of persecution, persevering in the faith that saves, it can only serve to bring us closer to the Lord, and it assures us all the more of the salvation that we have found in Him. And so considering that, considering these things to be true, I think we should ask ourselves, am I living just to keep myself and my family as comfortable as possible? It's all too easy to fall into the chase for the American dream, spending all of our time in pursuit of the things that will make us the most comfortable. Career success becomes our first priority. Our goals for our children center on their being the best at whatever they do, and we gather more creature comforts than we will ever know what to do with. Meanwhile, we go out of our way to avoid situations and conversations that make us uncomfortable. And I don't mean that as a condemnation of wealth or of having hobbies or having a career that you enjoy. But I, th I think that we have to ask ourselves some questions about what is behind the choices that I make every day. What motivates me to do the things that I do? Am I more concerned with making sure that I and my family are comfortable than I am concerned with our growing in holiness? Do I give myself to the pursuit of comfort because I have bought into the idea that suffering, persecution in particular, is a cancer that should be avoided at all costs? And I think we, we begin like asking ourselves these questions. I think we then have to look at situations that we face and choices that we have to make. For example, do I... Or would I be willing to fudge some numbers when asked? Or if I have been asked, because that ensures that I keep my job. Do I purchase all the hot new gadgets just to fit in and keep up with my friends and neighbors because I don't want them to mock me for not having what they have or because I'm envious of that which they have? Do I avoid sharing the gospel with my coworker or my neighbor for fear that they might reject me, for fear that they might mock me, for fear that they might spread uh, hurtful things about me. 
do I find myself passing up difficult opportunities, things I know will be difficult, to serve Christ on the basis of, well, I just don't feel called to that, when it, it's not really about calling at all, but it's because it would be hard to be obedient, and that would make us uncomfortable. The scriptures are quite clear. Suffering and persecution in particular are means of God's grace to his children. They are means by which God is refining and maturing you as a citizen in his kingdom. We may not seek it out, and I'm not even arguing with you that you should, but we should readily put ourselves in situations where it very well may come. Let me ask, what would happen if being uncomfortable just didn't bother you? How might you work to advance the kingdom? Would I pick up my family and move them to serve alongside church planters in a difficult and dangerous setting? Would I speak the words of truth to people in my life who are most adamantly against the gospel, who are most adamantly against Christ Jesus, be they friend or family or neighbor, not being concerned with what may happen to the relationship as a, as a result and being more concerned with their souls? Would I devote more of my resources, my time and my finances, to seeing the gospel preached in the darkest corners of the globe? If an honest assessment of your life reveals that comfort is your number one priority for you and your family, then you need to repent, for this is sin. Your ultimate devotion cannot be to your comfort. So take time, pray, seek, and look for opportunity to forsake comfort in service to Christ Jesus I'm reminded of what Danny Aiken, he's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, says, says, our prayer should not be, Lord, should I go, but instead, Lord, why should I stay? When we are persecuted, we are blessed. We are sharing in the sufferings of our Lord. He endured the scorn of an entire nation even as he hung on the cross bearing God's wrath against sin. He knows suffering. He knows persecution. And he invites us to join him in it because it serves the purpose of furthering his kingdom. A kingdom that is now and a kingdom that will be fully when he returns to fully and finally establish his reign. It was this glorious hope in Christ that drove the Stams to risk everything for their king. You see, while missionaries were being urged to retreat and to come home due to the rising political threat, John Stam would have none of it, writing, If we wait till all is peaceful, how shall the present suffering generation hear the gospel? We have an unalterable commission from him who gave his life for us. Matthew 28, 18, and 20. The words of a great military leader in this connection gives us the true perspective. Look to your marching orders. How do these read? The Stams understood what I am afraid that I have often forgotten. We're not living in peacetime. This is wartime. Persecution makes that evident. 
The Stam's obedience led to their death. But their deaths galvanized others, stirring their hearts to lay aside comfort, to go to the mission field in service to the one true king. It is still wartime. And Paul makes clear who our enemy is in Ephesians 6, 12. He tells us that our battle is not with people, not flesh and blood, who are all image bearers of the eternal God. Our battle is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places who have taken captive sinful men in and through their sin. This means that we cannot waste time chasing after the false comforts that are promised by the American dream. The time is now. Dive headlong into the deep end of the swimming pool. Strive to see the name of Christ exalted with everything that you've got. You will lose your little bitsy trinkets. But you'll gain the treasure troves of heaven stored up for faithful saints that he's ready to deliver into your hands. But Paul makes clear in this text that our striving for Jesus' exaltation is not an individual mission. It is the mission of the church. We may play different parts and we may have different individual experiences, but we are all in this together, standing firm and striving side by side for the sake of of the one true king. But when we don't see that this is wartime, I'm afraid that we, and we begin chasing after what makes us most comfortable, I think what then happens as a result is division in the family of God. Think about it. If I am mainly concerned with my own comfort, then I'm not going to be okay with anything that makes me uncomfortable even if it comes from someone who professes the same faith as me. I will go on the attack against them because they are between me and my primary goal, which is my comfort. Don't we see that having been brought together in Christ, we are to go out together to wage war against His enemy? Jesus says in Matthew 16 that He is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Together, we follow our king and we storm the very gates of hell, calling to the lost soul to be saved from their sins and to join us in the kingdom of our beloved Christ, to be brought out of the kingdom of darkness and to come into his kingdom. If we believe this to be true, why do we snipe at one another as if brothers and sisters are the enemy? That's no different than an army charging the fortress of their foe. But instead of pointing their weapons straight ahead, they get halfway there and turn their weapons on one another. We would look at this and call it insanity. But we do the same thing when we allow petty differences that will not matter in eternity to drive wedges in between us and our brothers and sisters in the faith. If someone professes God to be Lord over all, that He is holy, righteous, and just, 
If they believe that man is sinful, that they are sinful, that they have been saved through Jesus' death and resurrection for their sins, that they have repented of sin and have turned to Him in faith, that they are believing that He is coming again to judge the world, then you believe this too. This person is your brother and sister in the faith. Yes, you will have disagreements. You're not going to see eye to eye on everything. That's okay. This person, though, is not your enemy. They are striving with you for the cause of Christ. So be gracious to them. Put their needs above your own. Love them as fellow citizens in Christ's kingdom. Where grace and patience is lacking in your relationships with other Christians especially in this body, I would urge you, repent and be reconciled one to another. And I think making this connection should also drive us to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. There are churches who at this very minute are risking their lives and freedoms in service to Christ simply by gathering as we have. You may have heard in the news recently or over the last several years about Asia Bibi, a Christian woman in Pakistan. Asia was in prison and away from her family and her young children for the past nine years because of an alleged insult toward Muhammad. If found guilty, the only punishment on the books for such a crime in Pakistan is death by hanging. Fortunately, she was recently found innocent by the Pakistani Supreme Court who overturned the rulings of lower courts. But even then, there has been an outcry for her death. I just read a couple of nights ago that though she was released from prison this last week, there are extremist groups who have vowed to see that she dies. Not all of our brothers and sisters escape situations like this with their lives, and even then, she has not yet escaped with hers. But in our comfortable culture... Do we really ever think to stop and pray for them? I'm ashamed because I don't do this. I don't ever stop to think to do this. So church, we ought to pray for the Lord to strengthen them. To strengthen their spirit that they would persevere in their faith. And we pray for the Lord to meet their needs when persecutors take away the basic necessities that we so often take for granted. And that we would pray for the Lord to move through their steadfast obedience to reach the lost, to reach even their persecutors with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So church, may we be united in our common love for Christ who shed his blood for our sins, who died, who was resurrected, and who is coming again one day for the faithful saints. May we forsake comfort in pursuit of God's glory, looking ahead to that day, knowing the glory that will be had in that day is far greater than anything that this life can offer us, and dive headlong into service to our King, whatever that may bring. And may we remember our persecuted brothers and sisters in the faith, praying that God would strengthen them and work in them to reach countless others, drawing them into His kingdom that they can be sent out to. For his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you give us the ability to gather, that we are able to come together in peace and stability 
and worship you, the one true God, who is glorious, who is wonderful, who is mighty, who is all-powerful, who is sovereign over everything. And Lord, we acknowledge that you are sovereign and working even in and through persecution. And so, Lord, this morning we do lift up our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have the freedom that we have experienced this morning to just gather and read your word and sing praises to you, whose very lives are on the line just by virtue of their identifying themselves with you. But, Lord, they do that because they know the joy and the hope that they have that you have identified yourself with them. You have called them your own. So, Lord, strengthen them. As they face persecution, as they hurt, as they struggle, Lord, give them their needs. Give them bread, give them water, give them shelter, provide for them, but God, ultimately give them the strength to persevere whatever comes their way. Lord God, may we recognize that with the freedom that we have, there is no time for infighting. There is no time for backbiting. Lord God, forgive us where we've done this. And Lord God, bring us into reconciled relationships with one another that we, O Lord God, may move forward into this community, state, nation, and world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, begging and pleading with the lost to come to saving faith in the name of your Son. You, Lord, are glorious. You alone can do these things. You alone have done these things through the cross. An instrument of scorn, you, Lord, have turned into an instrument of victory. Wonderful Lord, we love you, we thank you. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.